This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman. This is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 224 brought to you in association with Smart and EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Rick Schaefer, a partner at Target Global, to discuss early stage investment in the current VC funding winter. Target Global is a pan-European technology investment firm with more than 3 billion euros of assets under management. Whilst investing across all stages from the startup to realization lifecycle, they are relatively unique in investing from pre-seed to A-rounds. To date, via their four global offices, they have backed some 15 unicorns and also have an investment in a little app bank you may have heard of called Revolut, who are not so little these days. You might also have heard of funding drying up in Europe and layoffs in the UK tech sector. So today we meet to discuss the intersection of early stage investing and the VC drought. When the tide goes out, both are tougher, both for the businesses, but also for the VCs. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Rick. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good morning. Thanks a lot for having me. Really excited to be part of your show. So we were talking when we were connecting you with wires, as we're live here in a very cold, manky day in, in London, snowing at home when I left, about being fit. And you look fit, but it turns out that you're getting even fitter than you look. So what's behind that? Yes, I had this mad idea of starting to train for triathlon a couple of months back. How hard can that be? <laughs> Well, it's hard with this weather, let's put it like this, because uh, you obviously have to do a lot of it outdoors. And it would have been easier living in uh, South Europe, especially for the cycling part. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a great journey so far. My, my big event's coming up in June, so that's when I'll have to peak. So I still have a bit of time. I was about to say that, uh, about to ask how long it takes to train to be a triathlete. But of course, that's a rather silly question because it's a bit like saying, how long does it take to go up Everest? Well, it rather depends whether you're in Kathmandu or a, a Camp 3 in the first place. So what was your base level of fitness and, and how long is it taking you? And how many hours a week are you devoting to it? You know, I couldn't really swim last summer. And uh, I've never run more than 10K and I have an electric bike. Electric bike will make the triathlon <laughs> much easier, actually, as long as nobody notices. As long as the battery lasts for the, <laughs> for the 180 kilometers I'm planning on doing. But, you know, with a good coach, you'll hopefully ramp up and, and, and get there. But I wasn't really particularly fit or just like a baseline level of fitness. But it's been really interesting to see the kind of progression and, uh, yeah, the kind of overall positive effects of putting some real thought into how to train and what to eat and how to change your lifestyle around it. Yes, and so how many hours a week are you doing then? Around 10 okay. at the moment, something like that. So that's quite a bit, yeah. but not completely insane yet. It's not completely insane. Do you have to go about 5 a.m. and sort of put an hour and a half in or something? I, I do get a lot of stick from my wife, but that's maybe a topic for another conversation. <laughs> I don't want to go. That's another series of podcasts. <laughs> yes. Excellent. And in terms of, as you say, the sort of non-fitness benefits, well, actually, we were talking beforehand that tomorrow night... It's the first time in 40 years I'm spending the night in my college as I'm talking to their newly founded um, entrepreneurial society. And I think that was the last time, <laughs> 40 years ago, I was relatively fit. And then you had to go at 6 o'clock in the morning, which was insane to go rowing up, up and down the river. And my recollection of, of, of that was I was tired all the time, actually. <laughs> I mean, the two kids don't help. So that's, anyways, I'd, I'd be getting up at, uh, at 6. 
Okay, so in terms of your career journey, what is it that brought you to um, VCing and um, triathloning? Uh, in terms of from when you were at uh, college or school or wherever you were, and I assume a little bit sort of southeast of where we are today. Yes, so I'm originally from Germany. I came to the UK in 2008. I had kind of my first stint in tech when I worked for Jamba, the ringtone company of the Sambas back in 2002. I think it was higher number 50 or so when they were still relatively small. Uh, so this kind of two years uh, prior to, the, to, to their exit. But then I started my careers. A lot of people actually in VC in, in banking uh, at a fantastic time, 08, doing IBD and kind of went through that whole financial crisis, which was interesting, maybe again, topic for another podcast. And, um, you know, did that for a couple of years, left banking and then helped start a, a business in the kind of film tech space, but also joined uh, Seedcamp uh, when they were relatively small in the third fund. And then kind of from then on, so over the last 10 years, I've just been investing in different capacities uh, for different funds, but also trying to raise my own fund and a lot as an angel, actually. And uh, I'm with Target since 2019 when we launched our second early stage fund and uh, co-managed the uh, early stage fund here together with my colleague uh, Shmuel. And we're currently investing out of our third fund. So I've kind of now been investing for the last couple of years in what we define as early stage is kind of anyway from pre-seed to A up to 50 million pre-money valuation. I see. And so we'll dive into the um, detail in a minute. But in terms of that journey from big co to small co via being an angel, I've the last year mentored a few folks who want to go from big co to angeling and being nice to founders or putting money into founders and then being nice some days and not being nice depending on which way the wind's blowing. What do you think it was looking back over the sort of 15 years that was kind of most surprising to you about the small co, co world compared to your expectations at the outset when you were a big co person? I mean, obviously, in a bigger company or organization, you know, there's uh, established processes and it's a lot more institutionalized the way you do things. And there's also less opportunity to, uh, in a way, be hands on and do many things at once and, and therefore learn. It's more obviously kind of a predefined path, which suits some people, doesn't necessarily suit everyone. You know, for me, also wanted to be on the buy side and I wanted to be more entrepreneurial, which of course is a lot easier in a, in, in a smaller setup uh, or as, you know, going out solo or going out with a partner. And I think particularly now with this kind of technical revolution that we're in, the opportunities are immense, right? If you think about, you know, anything from investing to starting a company and, you know, of course, that's a lot easier when you're in a smaller setup because there's less rules that you need to abide by. So Yes, it's a spectrum between sort of organic and talking of southern Germany, BMW factory. Mm -hmm. You know, once you're a city group or something, you're a BMW factory. You've got yeah. processes, procedures to ensure very reliable output and controlled and all that kind of stuff. But at the, at the early stage, it's a very sort of organic thing, very creative, of course, very chaotic at the at the same time, if there wasn't some chaos, then it wouldn't be able to yeah. move and change rapidly, which I guess leads quite nicely into this point, which is relatively anomalous, I feel, based on my experience, which is not all VCs volunteer to invest in the sort of very early stage, because even if you're a very clever picker of good businesses, the early stages have still got a huge uncertainty around whether they're even going to get an aeroplane built let alone if they can get the aeroplane to the runway, let alone if they can get it halfway down the runway going sort of relatively quickly, let alone if it actually goes off the ground and above the trees. Most VCs, I would have thought, quite like to see the aeroplane 
has cleared the trees at the end of the runway. Ah, now we just give it a bigger wings and more fuel, mixing, ruining my metaphor completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, different strategies, of course, different products that you sell to you know, your investors, and then therefore also different risk reward and, and yeah, return profiles. I think for us, the way we distinguish because we have two funds, early staging growth is really around also the question of kind of product market fit. So with our growth fund, which is half a billion euro fund, we typically back businesses that have reached product market fit and now need capital to scale, right? And, and kind of early stage, it's pre-product market fit, but really we don't necessarily kind of back businesses at seed, we back people. And it's of course a lot more difficult for me, personally, the reason why I love early stages is because it also gives you a different opportunity to actually work with the founders and help them, in a way, build the business or, or, or try to be helpful in kind of getting the plane to lift off. It's hugely rewarding if it happens. And it's just a different strategy, really. Happy to go into more detail because that was like an interesting discussion. What's, what works better? Yes, and so in terms of backing people, I would assume that the logical thing to do is to back people that you know, and not only that you know, but who have yeah. succeeded before. So at least all they're doing is working in a new space, a new market area, rather than going through what the, the newbie founder does, which is working out what the hell foundering is and growing a business is and yeah. recruiting people is and scaling and all that kind of yeah. stuff. They've done that, so they presumably know know that part and correct me if there's a different approach but the challenge then and I think to various sort of founders back in the day which is that just because you've succeeded once doesn't mean you're going to succeed twice uh, and then there's also the phenomenon which is that a founder may be for the sake of argument 22 really hungry really driven working mm -hmm. 27 hours a day nine days a week and make a great success and then he may do the same thing again but then by the time he's sort of 44 no longer a triathlete <laughs> got several divorces behind him and mm -hmm. um, he may be rather more burnt out and no longer have what it was that the, the drive mm -hmm. you'll have more knowledge you'll have more contacts you'll have more experience but there's some going back to the the triathlon I'm sure it's something that one experiences doing a triathlon at a certain point it's not so much your arms and legs that keep you going it's the drive which mm -hmm. is I'm going to do this it's something from the heart kind of stuff and that can wear out with time how have you found that dimension yeah so Maybe we take a step back, right? We want to back people that, in a way, bring an unfair advantage. And this, of course, if you're uh, a second-time founder, you'll have learned a lot from your first, as you said, kind of first venture. A lot of mistakes that everyone automatically does. And um, I think that's definitely an added benefit. Because, you, you know, you, you talked about divorce, right? If you're a founder that is in its 10th venture and every two years starts something new, it's a little bit um, someone who's... Um, had his 10th divorce. Mm. Maybe the concept of marriage isn't for you. <laughs> so I think there's a flag also on that end, right? The other extreme. And you touched a little bit on the, the person that's kind of maybe started something, has been like hugely successful. In a way, I mean, we want to back people that have a vision and want to build a big sustainable business and then actually stay in those businesses, right? I mean, if you look at Chesky at Airbnb and a bunch of other kind of like big founders, they don't continuously start I mean, Musk is, a, is an extreme in itself. Let me not talk about it. I mean, obviously, but generally, big founders stay then in their company, they're public, and then they continue um, working there. But the founders we back, and you, you're right, we like to back people that we know. By the way, also, that's the case for operators who've been number two or number three in a business that scaled. But often it's those founders that 
started a business successfully, but couldn't quite get there in, you know, getting it to a specific scale, unicorn, exit, etc. And maybe had a smaller exit, learned a lot on the way and now started. And yes, that drive is hugely important. But I, f- I also feel like you either have the founder gene or you don't. Right. And if you have that bug and you have that gene and, and it also comes from that drive to solve a specific problem and to build a big business. And, you know, we, we like those kind of founders. And in fact, in, in, in the third fund, we backed a couple of folks that, you know, had, a, had an exit somewhere in a single digit or double digit million. And then now they're trying it out again, but with a, a kind of clearer vision and in and and an almost more focused way, um, avoiding the mistakes they might have done in the, in the first uh, instance. So using my sort of right brain metaphor, scribbling on the whiteboard, would it be true that kind of what you're saying is that you want some up-and-coming mountain climb and go back to, I don't know, the 70s when plenty of the Himalayas hadn't been climbed? You get um, Doug Scott, for example, you know, they climb some sort of 8,000-metre peaks and mm-hmm. then, you know, then maybe Annapurna and then kicked it. You want one who's still trying to get higher and higher yeah. as opposed to those mountaineers 20 years on where they've done them all now. <laughs> and you say a seven or eight figure, I mean, it sounds silly to the audience and it sounds silly to me, but seven or eight figures doesn't go that far these days if you're not careful on the tax and you get a little bit of that and all that. You can yeah. easily spend it on a house in, in London. It's not like um, one of the founders on the, the, the show a couple of years ago from America who'd founded two unicorns. One was listed, the other mm-hmm. was a trade sale mm-hmm. for over a billion. Mm-hmm. You know, that gives you a few quid. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so you're not hungry, hungry then. But it's, it's often not about the money right? I mean, how do you define success? Yeah. Is success just being rich and then you're bored? I find a lot of founders, they're actually in it not to become rich, but because they want to win. They want to build a big, sustainable business, right? By the way, the mountaineering analogy is, I think, uh, a good one. Not necessarily for Everest. I think people are holding hands all the way up to the top at so many, but uh, the others um, is a good analogy because a very lonely journey at times, right? And you need to have a lot of mental strength and, and be able to do to go through all of these kind of valleys and troughs to to get there so yeah yes i think it's a very good reminder i mean i was thinking of this only recently actually that um in this kind of quotes neoliberal world although neo to me seems a, to mean anti it's, it's not liberal it's anti-liberal and neoconservative is not a neoconservative they're anti-conservative but anyway that's just a linguistic point it is very easy especially with inflation and prices and all that kind of thing for people to get more and more focused on money aspect but as I'm sure you do, and being a bit older, I know people, even if they haven't got gazillions, they're retiring anyway. It's a driver when you're young in your career, when you're middle-aged, and I quite like more money, thank you very much, and you probably would too, because you can always spend it on something. But for those people that I've met over the decades who, quotes, have enough money and could retire now, the last thing they want to do is actually retire. Bridget and I were talking recently about what happens if we bought a lottery ticket and won a billion. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that sounds quite nice, and Actually, if we've got a lottery ticket, I'll definitely buy one with a billion because there's lots of things you can do. But the point is, you, we would start doing something. We go, okay, right, we've got a foundation now. Yeah. How are we going to improve the world? What are we going to change? We would be found, we'd be well-capitalized founders, but we set about trying to actually leave the world a better place when we go to our graves and, and, and meet, meet the maker. And not yeah. just that. One of the prior guests on the show, I, I won't say which one, worked for a very large company for uh, a lot of his life. And I was talking to him about the... Uh, the thing that Ozzy Osbourne said about retiring, which is when he came back at the age of 50, uh, that's because he thought you retire from something, whereas it turns out you retire to something. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have a two to go to. And this chap was telling me beforehand about uh, the company he worked for, and plenty of people left with 
enough money at 60, 65, and he said a hell of a lot of them were dead within five years. Because if you've got a demanding lifestyle, and you've got some reason to get up in the morning, you're driven all the time, and then you just sit at home and have another slice of toast with another newspaper, you just sort of... So for us, when, you know, it's, it's almost a bit of a flag if a, if a founder at that early stage starts talking about secondary and exit and ways to make money because we're investing, and this is almost a bit back to the original question, kind of the two products, early stage and growth, we're investing to return 5 to 10x to our LP. So I'm taking a bit of a detour here, right? So every deal we invest in needs to have the potential to return 160 million, 120 million euro fund, which means we're looking for big outliers, billion dollar businesses. And if we have a founder that with the first M&A offer yeah, yeah. sells, you know, that's not necessarily for us. If you want to build a lifestyle business, that's, by the way, fantastic. It's just then you need to seek out different sources of capital, right? But yeah, I mean, t- typically we find, you know, founders take a bit of secondary in the, in the A or B, often because they're the least well-paid person in the company. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, costs are going up, mortgages, etc. So it's totally fine to take a, a little bit money on the table. But yeah, you, you're out there to build a big big company, not just to optimize your finances. Yes, and before we go into the sort of current uh, funding landscape, which we mm-hmm. haven't discussed explicitly on the show so far this year, you said one thing which was sort of interesting, and again, this might just be how you subset the market rather than this is the absolute thing, which is you quite like finding founders who will go over the, all the way. Mm-hmm. I think it was my feeling, certainly when I was speaking to people about the book, but also now doing the podcast for nine years, that there are a few founders like that. They're, they are perhaps few and far between that can go the whole distance. But then also the other phenomenon I've observed are the what you might call stage one, stage two, stage three part of a rocket, like of a sort of Saturn V. There are founders who are very good at hyping the fuck out of something and mm-hmm. making a song and dance and getting the media attention and getting people excited and, you know, all that sort of, wow, smoke and mirrors and excitement. Wow, wow, you know, really, you take something from zero to, to one, but that's really their USP and they're not very good at going from one to ten, let alone from... 10 to 100. So, again, just, just using the Saturn V uh, analogy, what is your experience of the, these kind of segmented founders who, who do the zero to one stuff, who can, who can do the Indian rope trick, who can get you from the floor to the ceiling with absolutely nothing, and then you're sort of suddenly on the floor, and then you've got the scale up one, one to 10, and then you've kind of got, quotes, got the industrialization or the exponential phase going from 10 to 100 to 1,000? I mean, it's very hard to generalize. I think founders come in all kinds of flavors. You know, in the, in the earlier uh, phases, it's important to be able to articulate the vision and be really good at storytelling and fundraising, right? Because you're not necessarily kind of raising on, on metrics, but more on you being able to, you know, kind of bring people along on the journey and... and inspire them with a vision. Inspire them with a vision versus, versus then from Series A onwards, you'll be more judged based on metrics, right? Now... I find the very good founders are, are, are able to do both and, and are kind of adaptive and, and learn. It's very hard. No one's born and knows everything. But, you know, at the core, I think more important even than being able to, you know, run on stage and, and cheer up thousand people and is at the end of the day, what matters is are you building a product that customers, you know, care about and pay you or not? You know, are you, are you solving a problem is the business good? I think that's really, I mean, in a way, it's our job to uh, cut through the BS and, and, and really just see it in the fundament. Is this a really 
good product and is the product evolving and is you know of course at pre-seed there is no product and it's and it's just the team so we need to kind of not fall in the trap of you know just judging people based on how articulate they are or kind of so then often the past experiences play a role but at some stage it's really you know how good's your product and are people you know you know paying are you growing are people uh, loving your product right would they be upset if you take the product away do you have product market fit really that's really what matters actually right yes you remind me the other day i think i was bored of watching woo woo stuff on on youtube or political stuff on youtube and uh, i watched uh, an interview with peter Thiel. i think a few years ago maybe it was on dave rubin's show or something mm-hmm. and in particular i hadn't heard him talk before in detail about the early paypal stuff oh yeah and all the ideas they went through there i mean one of them was to you know he said we were talking about the fact we can replace central banks and we can have our own kind of currency and all these kind of ideas were floating, floating um, uh, around before they ended up in the, the direction they were going at. And uh, I'm sure he said something along the lines of, um, in tech, you don't need to worry about marketing. Now, obviously, this depends what type of tech you're in, because in some parts of um, fintech or adtech or whatever, you do need marketing. But his point was much more was that the PayPal experience had been really focusing on product-led growth, I guess. I'm making a product yeah. that will kind of spread itself. And the, yeah. the bit of the story I hadn't particularly heard was they were just thrashing around with all these ideas and they realised, I think it was something to do with the election cycle, they realised that they need to grow bloody quickly because mm-hmm. otherwise the whoever was going to come in would stamp on them and, you know, before you know it, the SEC mm-hmm. or the banksters mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, they wouldn't be able to grow. So he said we realised that actually rather than just trying to sort of, he didn't put it this way, but rather than try and pay a few politicians, which is the way in, in America to sort of defend them, as it were, the best thing they could do was, was grow. And they thought, well, how can we grow quickly? And then they came up with this idea of connecting emails and money, mm-hmm. which hadn't been done before. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he said, well, our metrics were something along the lines of, you know, there were a dozen people in the office at the time, and then we got them to email money to each of them, 12 of their friends or something mm-hmm. like that. And mm-hmm. then at some crazy stage, they were doing, I don't know, 10% growth per day or something mm-hmm. because it was spreading. It was kind of, quote, going viral in that yes. way. And therefore, the network effect sort of happened. And then they got to a scale where they couldn't just be sort of crushed because the banks wanted to keep payments for them, mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, interesting, interesting tale. So moving on from this sort of the early stage considerations, and whilst you explain it very clearly, I'm sure like many things, there's, there's an art to it. <laughs> like riding a horse or something, you know, you can learn to ride a horse, someone can tell you how you ride a horse, but then there's lots of differences about how well people can ride horses. The funding landscape, it's been an interesting few years, one way or another. It turns out if you turn the light switch on and off for economies and pay people to sit on sofas, it doesn't really do the economy much good, and that's before we get into issues of QE and, and, and monetary explosions and then monetary policy and inflation and, and blah, blah, blah. But a long story short, the overall context is that the economic outlook in Europe, one way or another, isn't ideal, that money is harder to come by than it was. And this feeds down into this thing that uh, you can tell me and the audience more about, which is the, the, the so-called VC winter, that it's um, much harder to go and get money for your business, which then has knock-on impacts and you know, people laying off techies and things like this in London. Yeah, so, you know... There's obviously lots of parts to your question. I wouldn't actually use the word VC winter personally because I probably see more of a market correction in a way. If you look at kind of amounts of capital that are generally available from the institutional funds and you compare that, you know, 2023 levels with, you know, even five years ago, there is still a lot of 
capital out there and we're so, so significantly better off than we ever were in the past. Well, exactly. Just, just us on that yeah. point, because I'm, I am very curious about this, because, I mean, people get contacted by various other businesses mm-hmm. who are cutting the price and, and all that kind of stuff. That's maybe because VCs can drive up a better deal and the less honest VCs than you say, oh, there's a, there's a winter. The way the process works is very indirect from interest rates to the amount of money in VC funds, because you have your VC funds. It's not like you're going to the market every day and trying to, as it were, take out a mortgage, as it were, and interest rates have gone up and you're paying more for it. You really a fund for the sake of argument last year, you've got the fund. It doesn't disappear. Ditto every other VC in London. So what may get a bit trickier is at the margin. Anybody trying to raise new funds this year might find it a bit harder when they yes. knock at the doors of pension funds. Yeah. But I don't know what the percentage would be. But the percentage of quote, new VC money in London raised every year compared to the stock of VC money yeah. is, is relatively small, isn't it? I mean, yes, for sure. There is kind of knock-on effect. And that's driven by the LPs. I mean, everyone has a customer. We're, 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 we need to go to LPs to raise capital. And I think those kind of larger LPs, you'll see a bit of a separation between the funds that have managed to create DPI, so have managed to return funds and, and have good performance, and those that, for whatever reason, haven't managed to create those returns. And, and therefore, because it's a competitive process where you're benchmarked, will fall behind, right, vis-a-vis other funds. So I think, yes, there's, there's going to be, it's going to be a lot easier for the top-tier funds to raise vis-a-vis maybe even the newcomers or, or, or as I said, uh, the funds that haven't really managed to return any capital. And, and those LPs, they'll say, well, before I uh, commit again, I want to see some uh, capital flowing back first. So I think I mean, that's just generally globally how that knock-on effect kind of works because their own return expectation changes, etc. I think the other part of this kind of, when you look at funding landscape, where you see some of the effect, particularly in the UK, is non-institutional capital we have here with SES, EIS, you know, a lot of incentives for angel investors and new types of investors that entered the market and they're pulling back a little bit, right? So, you know, the rich banker or someone who hasn't actually kind of invested in the past and in 21, 22, because there was more capital available, was easier to write a quick check. Those not necessarily dry up, but I think it's, it's probably going to be a bit harder, also crowdfunding. And, but as I said in the beginning, I think there is generally still a lot of capital out there. There's also new market entrants, like if you, in, in later stage, if you look at PEs moving a little bit down, you have corporate venture that's entering the, um, you know, the, the, the VC market. And what we see, though, is valuations are more reasonable compared to the last two years, which is... I think, a healthy development. Is that not just froth coming out of the market, though? Because things, things are non-linear. They get, I mean, everything is, in a sense, to me, a, a yeah. bit of a sort of, a, a bit of an echo of the, the big tech boom around the year two, 2000. You know, press go through the roof and then they yeah. go down. Like with a lot of things in the economy, right, you have these, these swings. I think, you know, of course, with more capital, what you've seen in 21, 22 is that a lot of the prices were driven not necessarily by the fundamentals of the business but by competitive dynamics yes exactly right two funds bidding and then because everyone sits on a lot of a lot of money you just want to win the deal and the valuations go into territories that are just not healthy right so that's my drive and i think we see some of the corrections some of the kind of growth rounds now happening at kind of say flat rounds vis-a-vis 21 already a success by the way if it was a crazy high valuation i think people will look more at multiples and look more at kind of the real fundamentals of the business and, and not just uh, kind of, yeah, paying whatever valuation just to be in... Uh, a bull market. Yeah, the, you know, the classic bull market effects, right? So what does all of this really mean then if you're 
a founder seeking early stage funding right now or in practice, how does your day job look different from one or two years ago other than when you're queuing outside some hot property, the, the queue is shorter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I actually think it's, that's why I said the, 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 the word winter is a bit misleading because I think it's actually a really good time to start a business. It might sound a bit counterintuitive, but you know, if you look back at uh, the last kind of recessions or eight or so, that's the time when you had, you know, some of the now biggest tech companies actually um, come to life, right? And, you know, particularly now what you have as a founder is a lot of talent that's available. And, uh, you know, it was just two years where it was really hard to find engineers and, and, and so that the benefits of the layoffs is if you're starting a company, you have it's access a to, to a buy. wider pool of folks that are out there and uh, happy to join a new, new venture. That's one. The other is there's been a lot of infrastructure that's been built. In fintech, for example, if you look at the you know, banking as a service and all the you know, open banking plays and, 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 and different companies providing APIs, etc. If you want to start a company, you can do that in a very lean way today versus in the past where you had to build a lot of that stuff yourself. You can launch a company by hacking your way into an MVP with a lot less kind of capital required. And then, you know, we are still investing at Target. I mean, we, I mentioned, I think, in, um, when we spoke last, uh, we've done four in the process of doing the fifth pre-seed deal. So companies that have, haven't really gone out yet uh, with, with a product and are, and are still kind of in the, in the building mode. And uh, the question is, of course, what do you do if, if, you ha if you're not a second-time founder and if you don't know a VC and you have a great idea, I think one change that I see now, more and more businesses do, they start with a kind of service element of the business. So they focus on revenue first and not necessarily in building immediately that scalable business model in software. You see that a lot. In the past, you might have been judged on having, you know, is this a pure play, SaaS play where everyone, or do you have like a tailor-made solution? And, and I think that's okay. Um, actually, in fact, it's, often viewed as uh, a team being really commercially minded and, 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 and focusing on monetization first. So, you know, it's not easy, but I think it's actually a good time for the reasons I mentioned. Okay, and then in terms of the outlook, what sectors do you think are going to do well in London? What particular areas, verticals, do you think new founders should be looking at mm -hmm. uh, in the coming years? Um, I mean, one of the problems, I don't know whether you find as a VC, similar to me, you, you've got thousand, two thousand people knocking on your door every year. You, mm -hmm. you plough through them, I've got sort of thousands of emails coming in, I plough through them. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, after a while, your kind of eyes glaze over and, you know, it's very easy to get into the uncreative frame of mind, which is, blimey, everything's been invented already. Because when I get sort of the thousandth email saying, oh, our guest wants to tell, tell your listeners how technology is going to make finance cheaper and faster and better. Oh, God. <laughs> Um, so, in a sense, it's all a bit like Sherlock Holmes. It's always hardest to spot the dog that doesn't bark. So it can be quite hard to spot the areas that aren't covered by the 1,000 people who come knocking on your doors yeah. uh, every year f for, for money. But what's your personal um, feeling, having seen it in the round for quite some time, about the areas that are ripe for um, dislocation? Let me try and answer that in a, in, a, in a different way, because I think every VC will, uh, at this stage, tell you about um, the thesis-driven approach they have and how they kind of map the world. And yeah, yeah, some rational. It's all logical. <laughs> you know, of course, we have that as well. We, it's easier for us to, if we have a framework, look at a company and say, okay, it fits into how we think the world evolves and, and not. But the reality is, you know, great businesses are being, have been built and by disrupting or not necessarily kind of 
coming up with a completely new market, but just disrupting the way things have been done. I mean, look at all the payment companies that emerged in Europe, right, over the last. And really, it's not, luckily, not down to us to come up with these uh, new ideas, but down to the founders. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, we, yeah. our job is more to see, okay, who, who do we believe is the right team, is a AAA team to then create the opportunity, right? But from a kind of 20,000 feet perspective, I think fintech, we're really still at the beginning. Um, there's so many areas where, as a customer, I'm still not happy, and I think there there has to be better ways of doing things. And then, you know, with new technologies, I think we'll see whole new sectors. I mean, open AI is obviously an, uh, generative AI is an obvious obvious one, but all aspects of GDP, I think, will go through a continuous cycle of innovation and improvement through technology. You know, we're, we're actually quite excited. And you know, since I'm in venture. There's always been this, oh yeah, but everything's been done now. Yeah, and yet yeah, yeah. every year we see like really great businesses come out and do something new, right? So Yes, yes. Humanity never sleeps. It's probably like when um, farming had really caught on and sort of hunter, the few hunter-gatherers left and everyone's farmers now. Well, what else is there to do? And then the Industrial Revolution comes along. Well, we've got factories, we've got steam trains. What do you need after steam trains? Well, aeroplanes and what, et cetera, et cetera. So, now we're disrupting the airplanes. Yes, quite. Yes, it's a, and it's a good point that you make, of course, which is entirely paralleled in, in my life, which is that I don't have to think of the new stuff. I just have to plow through a thousand bloody emails every two or three months and go, oh, wow, hey, that's a cool one. Oh, wow, I want mm-hmm. them on the show. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's much more the ability to sort of keep sifting through the silt and see the tiny bit of gold nugget. Or perhaps in your case, something that's got a bit of gold shining on one end is covered in rock in the other. And you think, well, actually, if these guys, talking about working with the older ones, if they guys focus on this part of this rock, it's going to go somewhere. From your perspective, I mean, the, that's a cool filter to have, which is, wow, is this, is this a great product? Would I like to use that? Or oh, that's something new and, and, and interesting. Because ultimately, that's what drives the success of a business, right? Which is back to the, what we talked before. Is this something that people will pay for and uh, will see mass adoption? Exactly right. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there. I'd particularly like to thank those who are thinking about being new founders and who are looking out for what the problems are of the world and how they can amend them slightly or what new cool things they can do. I'd also like to thank my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The unlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Rick, thank you for that very clear overview. You've mentioned Target once or twice, Target Global, but particularly from the perspective of focusing on your early stage. So maybe for completeness, you'd like to tell the listeners out there what Target Global is doing, what your funds are, uh, and what you need to be even bigger and better than you are today. So... Yeah, as I mentioned before, we're investing across the life cycle of a business, you know, from inception all the way into growth. So we're pretty unique in that front, but also we're spread out across different geos with an office in Berlin and, and Tel Aviv and uh, London and, and Spain. And so, you know, I think we're, we're, we're a good local partner and we've backed over 100 companies. So we have uh, a good history of working with uh, really, really top uh, companies and founders. Which verticals? I mean, we invest across... I'd say, so we're quite agnostic, but I'd say we, we invest, typically we categorize our investment scopes into uh, consumer, software, fintech, and marketplaces. Uh, we've done a lot in digital health. We've done, you know, across 
all kinds of, um, I'd say, scalable business models. So hardware, a little bit less, but yeah, other than that, we're quite, we're quite open and with a kind of focus on Europe, uh, opportunistically, uh, the MENA region, uh, Middle East and Africa. And, uh, you know, my message for anyone that's listening, um, if I can have a shameless plug here, is that if you are a founder that has started a business or wants to start a business and you think you have that fair, unfair advantage that we talked about in the beginning because, you know, you come from a specific company or sector or, or you're a repeat founder or, or any other kind of reason why you'll be better than your competition, reach out to us. We're investing, you know, we've done a bunch of deals over the last couple of months. We're, I think, 20% in on our third fund. Uh, so lots of firepower left in early stage, uh, lots of firepower left in growth. And uh, yeah, we'd love to talk to, to anyone that's, uh, that wants to reach out. Excellent. And um, I'm reminded when you say that, and I've forgotten who it was now, the VC that said we prefer to invest in straight lines rather than in dots. So from a founder's perspective, you may turn up and see a VC and there'd be no deal at that particular time. But if you see them every six months or whatever, then, you know, let's say you've met me yeah. four times in the next two years, every six months, mm-hmm. you've got some idea of my trajectory, yes. how I'm coping with things and how the stories uh, are changing. And I think that's one thing that you know, the naive new founder can fail to see it as, which is that oh, no, I had a series of rejections. Yeah. You had a series of rejections now. Yeah. Maybe you will in six months, but maybe in nine months, three of those VCs will actually be impressed about how you've carried on and, yes. and the direction and trajectory. I mean, yeah, we're in a relationship business, and it's a very important part. I'm glad you mentioned that. Obviously, being rejected once doesn't mean... And, you know, who, who dares wins, and you have to be the brave and continue trying and reaching back out. And, you know, we get it wrong all the time. You know, our anti-portfolio is doing very well. And uh, it's just part of investing. Um, you know, you cannot back every company that, that comes. In. But because we have the benefit of having two funds and also we can invest across different stages within each of the fund, we might say no at pre-seed, but yes at seed or at A, right? So it's definitely worth, you know, maintaining that relationship, sending updates, being proactive. And yeah, at the end of the day, nothing proves us more wrong than attraction. Right and, and, and really showing that kind of engagement of viral growth or uh, whatever it is that's kind of relevant for your business. So glad you mentioned that. Yeah, very important. Excellent. Yes, I've got a book somewhere called The Road to Yes is Paved, Paved with No's or something, or No is the Way to Yes or, or something like that. And, and thinking back, talking about relationships and somebody who isn't divorced, a buddy of mine uh, decades ago, he got turned down by a young lady for years. Eventually she married him. <laughs> uh, and now they've got several children. He's a very important, uh, important person, and they, they lived happily ever after. So if he'd given there up at go. the nose, and I use that metaphor because I'm sure both boys and girls listening to this show will have uh, come across uh, nose. That's just no today. It may not be no tomorrow. So thank you very much for that, Rick. That's been very helpful. I particularly like the, the decomposition of this narrative that it's, uh, it's some kind of nuclear VC winter out there. Maybe some of the froth is blown off the bubble. And also I like the, the positive take, which is that, you know, last time there were significant challenges, 08 onwards. Well, I think, well, in about 2010, wasn't it Funding Circle and TransferWise and I don't know what it's revolution, a whole bunch of them, really important ones founded, yes. uh, founded then. And in the same way now that if the economic situation keeps deteriorating, then it will lower the, the cost of um, labour. Uh, it will make it harder for all the VCs to find something hot and sexy to um, invest in. And it may be time to plant the acorns for the next forest of oak trees. So thank you very much for that, Rick, and I wish you and Target every success in the future. 
Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city With the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.